Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Well, good morning, Eric. How are you? Pretty good. What do we have on the docket for today? What what would you like to talk about? Well, I'd like to talk about employment uh, today, both relative to the lack of employment uh, for most prisoners before they go in, and then the difficulty, uh, which is even more severe, of getting and maintaining employment post-release. There's a lot of discussion, of course, about things we've touched on that's important for post-release success, and employment's right up there. That whole ban-the-box thing that backfired the wrong way, which we discussed previously. All right, so tell me more about the problems about how I I assume the causality is that unemployment is positively correlated with uh, crime and the potential to to get caught and put in prison. Yeah, well, and, you know, to begin with, you know, as we discussed, the there's a lot of racial disparity in the justice system, and over time, that racial disparity has blossomed into economic disparity. And so, the people who go to prison now, black uh, and white, and it's fast approaching that there are uh, as many white women, for example, in prison as African American women. Hmm. The ratio, of course, still uh, very disparate. Um, but considering this economic disparity, it's not surprising to know that something less than about half of all prisoners in state prisons have reported that they were employed prior to incarceration. So you've got in the general public a 6-8% unemployment rate, according to the definitions of the Department of Labor, right. which discounts a lot of people not working for work, et cetera. But that's a single digit compared to 50%. Uh, you know, And so when I've worked in uh, poor neighborhoods, uh, 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 also racially uh, disparate, um, you see uh, unemployment rates among young men in the 75, 85 percentile. I mean, it's just incredible. So without work, without money, how do you get by? You find uh, other ways to make money. How do you, well, I guess, you know, and you, you hang out. Uh, you know, we interviewed a lot of uh, men who have been thrown out of their uh, place of residence because they don't have any uh, money to pay, and then they go to a relative's house and they kind of couch surf and they go from one to the other and it's very difficult and mm-hmm. they may make money uh, working but it's not a job job it's uh, you know making some cash working half a day getting enough to get by etc mm-hmm. so this 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 issue of employment is really uh, critical without it you don't pay for housing without it you're not motivated etc and so if you got <clears throat> approaching 50% of the people who uh, prior to prison uh, aren't uh, employed, then imagine what it's like after, right? So now the numbers shoot up to about 55% of the people who are post-release report no income. Hmm. And when they do report income, it's minimal. It may be low minimum wage. And so this whole uh, issue of employment and employability has got these stark numbers, and there's a lot of work that's gone on across the country to try to figure out how to do a better job at that. And not surprisingly, it centers on how to engage employers as motivated uh, participants in this work. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, one thing I so, one thing I remember hearing about um, when I was living in Denmark was that they have this, uh, not so much, I'm sure they probably do this for, for prison releases as well, but they had this concept of um, rather than uh, unemployment just being a check that you got when you were idle, uh, as it is in so many places. They had this this concept where the government would like pay 
for half of your salary if you worked somewhere. So that incentivized the employers to be like, oh, you mean I can I can get uh, I can get Dennis to work for me for fifty percent of what I would have to pay him normally? Uh, then sure, and that gets you on the ladder. That gets you working. That gets you feeling. Uh, a big part of work is feeling that you are contributing and that you have a purpose and et cetera, et cetera. So that seems like such a genius plan to me. Um, I, I wonder well, exactly. if that's part it, of the strategies. It is. It is. There's, there's tax incentives uh, through something called the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, mm-hmm. and that provides employers uh, approaching about $10,000, $9,600 a year in tax incentives, uh, which is you know a good start. But you know at the end of the day, uh, those incentives are good. They probably need to be augmented with even more uh, incentives that, that I'll talk a little bit about. But that's a good start. Uh, but it, it requires paperwork. It's not the most complicated paperwork, but yet employers are asked to do something they're not used to doing. So one of the ways to support employers is to manage those tax credits uh, with them so that you reduce the paperwork, et cetera. Um, but it's uh, proven not to be enough. I mean, this tax credit is provided Oh, uh, I have to find the numbers, and I can. I think it's approaching about a billion dollars over the course of some uh, length of time, and so it's being used, but it's it's really uh, not enough. Um, and so there's examples uh, here and there of trying to engage employers in a in a, in a much smarter way, uh, which might be worth talking about a little bit. So, right, you have to motivate both employers, uh, and I imagine the the potential employees want to find work or I mean, it must, it must be hard. Like if you could do, uh, if you could do a quick little drug deal that nets you mm, $10,000, trying to compare that to, well, why don't I go to work for, uh, you know, six months and make, uh, about that. Uh, it's gotta be really hard to, to even consider, you know, given all the risk, to choose the uh, the law-abiding option, exactly. And what you you've got to find the uh, the right motivation. You've got to it's got to be well timed. There's got to be preparation. There's got to be assistance. Everybody's got to kind of be in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. And it takes a team of people to to try to focus on this. But at the center of it is employers and Louisiana, Southeast Louisiana, in the uh, <clears throat> New Orleans uh, parish area. We've developed an advisory council of employers who are experienced at hiring former prisoners and can tell story after story of how highly motivated and what good employees these former prisoners are, uh, mostly men. But that's the thing to understand. At the end of the day, an employer wants somebody who shows up for work. There aren't a lot of issues. There aren't a lot of hand-holding. They're not doing drugs. They're showing up on time. They're doing the job, et cetera, and all this other stuff. If they're socially motivated or even uh, spiritually motivated, they might be willing to do some other stuff, but it's got to be easy for them. And you've got to really tap into their capitalistic uh, uh, expectations that they're there to make money. That's what they're doing. And if they've got somebody that's not uh, you know, working to that end. So <clears throat> once you start to survey the marketplace and look at uh, em- employers that are hiring former prisoners. And there's a website out there that will tell you what employers and employment programs are available in every state. Hmm. So there's been a lot of research done and well documented that if you've got access to a computer and Wi-Fi, et cetera, then as a former prisoner, you can start to look at that stuff. But you know what? Uh, they don't have that kind of access. They're not 
uh, particularly well-educated. If they've been in prison for many years, uh, 15, 20 years, they're not even uh, uh, aware of how to use the technology. Yeah, we talked so about that. It's just, yep. it's just domino effect. But, but you start with employers and you start with the notion that if you're going to make this thing different, if you're going to make it work, you've got to connect employers to people who are in prison before they get out. Hmm. So that they have got some impact on a bunch of things, you've got programs uh, uh, that uh, are in prison that train on skills, what we call hard skills. So whether you're uh, learning how to uh, run a, a, a jitney in a, in a warehouse to move goods, or you're getting a skill as a welder or whatever, those hard skills you would think intuitively are going to be very important. But here's the thing: if you're an employer you're less concerned about the hard skills because you will train on those hard skills. Yeah, you skills. know how to train you're those. Running, well, you, and you train them in a very specific right, way. your so way of doing learning it. Learning right. welding, right. And, and, and so the, the research points more toward what we call soft skills, which is the, the, the stuff to be a good worker. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you get up on time. I mean, it, it, you want to be interesting to see a survey of, of former prisoners and what percentage of them have alarm clocks, hmm. right? right? You know, and what percentage of them, you know, I, I, I had a, a talk with a guy where he said he wanted to work. We're talking about his work and he showed up and he didn't have any uh, food with him. He didn't have any coffee with him. He didn't have anything with him. And when somebody asked him, so where's your lunch? You don't get a break. You don't get to go out. You got to bring your lunch with you. He said, well, I don't plan on being here that long. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, he was really to work. He wasn't necessarily wanting a job. He wanted to work. He wanted to get paid uh. cash on the spot, three or four hours, et cetera. So you got a hardworking guy, but doesn't have the set of, of social skills, these so-called soft skills. Imagine that. Right. The concept, um, the concept of a of a job where you have to report every every day for, you know, so many hours a day. That's totally different from uh, just showing up to do a couple hours and then see. Ya. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the same time every day and getting transportation. If, if you're uh, in a rural area, trying to get to an urban area is tough. If you're in certain urban areas in Detroit, for example, public transportation is terrible. Uh, you've got to, uh, you know, take different buses to get to different places where the jobs are. I've talked with uh, uh, former prisoners, women who single mothers, and they're at bus stops with their kids at four o'clock in the morning. They got to transfer two or three times to get to work. And we did an interesting uh, uh, mapping of a, a single um, parent uh, mother with two kids who had substance abuse and some mental health problems, and mapped out what their week looks like and all their transportation needs. It's astounding. Huh. Where they have to be, when they have to be, and you got to keep all that together. So, uh, looking at that 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 issue of, of of employment, just consider this. Let's say that you're you're likely, if you're in prison, your half is uh, about fifty percent likely that you didn't work before. Maybe you never uh, work, mm-hmm. and now you're 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 in an employment program. Let's say, and you 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 get transportation, you show up, and your boss is is perhaps not the gentlest, kindest person in the world, and your boss is ordering you around, and you get an attitude, and mm-hmm. it, it shows itself, you know, by saying, "Who are you? Who do you think you are to tell me what to do?" And the answer is, "Well, uh, uh, I'm your boss." And they want to debate it, and you know, and it's not it's not unusual to have that anyway, and you can walk through it, but there's a limit to how much of that you want. So you've got to have these soft skills. So. A lot of the programming uh, in uh, pre-release to incarceration should be focused on those soft skills. And when they have in-prison employment programs, they should be put at a premium. 
if the hard skills are not the hard skills that the employers want, then you actually could be in worse shape. An employer may say, well, I'd rather hire somebody who has who knows how to weld but has no welding training per se so that I can train them because it's harder to untrain them and retrain. Them. Uh-huh, right. And so there's, you know, in, in, in Michigan, there's a, a program that they uh, have teaching hard skills in a particular prison and they do not have a good uh, record of post-release employment, particularly six months after release, because they're focusing on the wrong thing. And so as you consider you know, how to tackle this, you've got to uh, meet employers where they're at. Uh, and an important uh, part of that is to make partnerships, collaborations with chambers of commerce. Uh, Louisiana, for example, we got the Louisiana Association of Business and Industry Lobby. That's the premier statewide uh, organization and they're one of our sponsors and we've connected with the different parishes chambers of commerce so when you go to those meetings you're talking to employers you're seeing them you're on their turf and you'll see some small percentage of them are interested in pursuing this and you know and that's that's who your core group becomes another way to get at that which i did in uh, north carolina when i worked down there for a while was to meet them when they're wearing a different hat so i would go to the presbyterian churches Mm-hmm. in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, and run a, a Sunday uh, Sunday school uh, program uh, of interest around criminal justice reform and whatnot. And I find a lot of employers in participating in that. And they got their church hat on, so they're more prone uh-huh. that particular day to be more concerned. You try to connect those. You can get the ministers involved. But how do you motivate them? Well, you motivate a number one by saying, look, I've got a good way for you to get good employees who show up for work, work hard, and are dependable and motivated, that's number one. If you can't promise that and deliver that, then you're you're, you're right from the get-go, you're, you're, sure. you're going to fail. Right. And so there's that. And then follow after that, there's tax incentive, there's ways to bond people to make certain that if there's any difficulty, they're covered. You reduce your liability. You talk about the support network that you have, not just a parole officer who very likely has a very high caseload and can't do a lot of handholding because they're often overwhelmed and this issue is one that they hand off to programs or even to you know employment agencies themselves. But you've got to have a support network and one of the things that we are uh, raising funds to do in Louisiana, for example, Southeast Louisiana, is to have a business liaison who is a former business person or even a current business person who is the contact for this employer. So employer is talking to somebody like him or her who knows, you know, what it's like to be able uh, to run a business. Mm -hmm. And then, as I mentioned, connecting these uh, more motivated or at least interested employers with a whole uh, slew of men who are going through uh, pre-release preparation within a short drive from the, 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 the place of employment so it makes it easy for them and they can go and they can interview prisoners and talk to them and have a choice of who they may um, uh, want to uh, uh, hire mm-hmm. and then with the tax incentives and perhaps even greater generated local incentives which has got to be about money just right. like you mentioned that's 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 what what makes it roll and then um, make certain that they're taken care of if there's any type of a difficulty that there's a quick phone call and somebody's there to help uh there's a social work aspect to this but uh i'll take a breath and um see see if if that makes sense to you yeah it does it does um i mean we're talking mostly about finding employment after prison 
Uh, are there what sort of steps can we policies can we implement to try and get people into employment? You know, before prison. I mean, again, you don't necessarily. It's harder to f- maybe find those people because, you know, they're not actually uh, captive in our custody. But are there? Is there evidence that uh, doing work to find jobs for at-risk individuals oh, yeah. in, in a community that haven't committed any crimes yet uh, reduces the crime rates? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, there is, and and it's 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 the same set of principles. Whether you're whether your uh, first perspective of uh, the forum is prison or whether it's uh, the court system or probation or the jail, the same principles apply. Right. And in fact, in, in one way, it's the same uh, people. It's the same men and women. Right. You, you either catch them earlier in that uh, trajectory mm-hmm. of criminal activity, uh, being caught, jailed for a short period of time, put on probationary status, which is supervision uh, generally prior to incarceration and then prison and parole, the same principles apply. And you've got to have a motivated, engaged uh, set of employers that are willing to do the work with incentives. Um, and uh, one of one of the ways to, to, to do this is what we call transitional jobs, where um, the first job that they have is one that's got a social work aspect to it. So let's say that they come into work and they've got a, a eight-hour day, but the first hour, first half hour every day is to meet with a, a social worker that's placed at the transitional job program, mm-hmm. and that social worker asks the employee the same question every morning. Is there anything going on in your life that's going to get in the way of you showing up for work tomorrow and working well today? Right. And then there's that interaction, and that social worker then may take time. He may say, yeah, I'm out of medication. Uh, my girlfriend left me last night. i got to leave her at work early. i got to go uh, figure out what I'm going to do about that. There could be obviously some counseling around that issue. But there's, there, you've got to pay some attention to these pressures yep. that are there. Uh, I don't have enough money to pay my rent. I'm, I'm missing this. I'm missing it. It's just on and on. If you don't have that type of support, that's why you're not going to show up for work. You know, and so you, you, you've really got to pay attention to it. If you can get them then through a transitional uh, supportive uh, employment program of one kind or another, then you're able to be able to have a resume that isn't blank. Yep. For that 50% that didn't have work beforehand, I mean, you can talk about the skills you have and the programs you have. How do you uh, have a resume with hardly anything on it or one thing on it, and that is ends up in the stack that employer gets for an open job, the stack of I want to interview as opposed to the stack that I won't. Right. You know, and you've got to get into the businesses. You've got to have a business rep using what we call a, 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 a business service model. Mm-hmm. And once they can start to uh, gain some experience and value of hiring these guys, then they can have testimonials and, and tell, attract other employers uh, to do, do the same uh, type of thing. And so uh, there's that. And, and then when those employers, whether they are uh, part of a, a participatory engagement of a local chamber of commerce to focus on this issue, or maybe they hear it because you made a connection with the chamber of commerce. So it's from the leadership position on down, that becomes another important part of it in criminal justice reform, because as a chamber of commerce, they're concerned about high crime rates. You're not going to have a business that flourishes if you're in a high crime neighborhood, you're not going to have a business that flourishes in a, in a state or a city, uh, which you've got a high, a very, very high unemployment rate. You have a hard time keeping workers. And so as a group of business leaders, they become incentivized 
uh, from that angle. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen, uh, again, in Louisiana, chambers of commerce coming together and issuing principles on what they would support around criminal justice reform. And uh, much to our delight and the things that we've talked about in this podcast before, we see that the Louisiana Chambers of Commerce support evidence-based solutions. They want things that are proven to work. They want to see the research. They don't want to read 75 pages of it, but they right. want to know that, that things have been tried and true. Um, and while they're uh, certainly interested in making their own investments, they want to be part of an investment strategy and a Chamber of Commerce leadership responds to leadership. So who do you have in the government that can lead? Right. We've talked uh, before about the difference between executive and legislative leadership. Well, in this case, executive leadership is very important because if you have a governor involved and the governor's head of the Department of Labor involved and, and, and you know all that's engaged, then you create a substantive uh, a movement, if you will, right. around this issue. And you've got to document it. There's a lot of hand-holding. There's got to be administrative support. That talk takes money as well. You've got to be very, very well organized in order to uh, pull this kind of stuff off. I always like to hear that, that people think evidence is important. What sort of – do we know that some systems of doing this work better than others? And what sort of characteristics mm, do we think – we can we can measure that to say uh, yes this is a this is going to be a better strategy than strategy B is going to be better than strategy C or whatever. Yeah, well, good. And you know, I I think I mentioned it one one podcast walking into the Kansas uh, prison and uh, these huge doors opened up and I walked into a factory of men who were embroidering hats and uh, sweatshirts and whatnot and they were not making minimum wage they were making a living wage they were paying for their room and board in prison and making enough money I interviewed a lifer. Uh, who had put his kids through college. He was very proud of that and very, very successful. So that's an example of, of a good uh, a, a part of a more substantive effort, meaning that they're teaching hard skills, but those hard skills are actually paid while they're incarcerated, and they are using that experience to train for those soft skills. Now, albeit uh, it's a little easier when you're in prison You've got to get uh, uh, woke up at the same time every day, et cetera, et cetera. You're not going to be late, right? right? But you, you, it's sort of like you know, uh, you know, golfing where you've got your your body is trained and your swing is trained. Well, it becomes natural. Mm -hmm. It's just a natural thing that that if you're late, you don't roll over and say, "Oh, to hell with it." You know, you get up and you you hurry. Right. Your car doesn't start. You say, "Oh, oh, to hell with it." No, you, you you call somebody that can give you a ride. Or you get on public transportation. You call your employer. You say you're going to be late. Your car won't start. You do those kinds of things, and that that stuff is uh, taught and trained. And you're given a wage, and then you're learning the motivation of the incentive, the personal incentive of financial, and you are assisted with uh, how to manage those funds uh, as well. So you've got a, a need that the longer you're incarcerated, you've got to pay more attention to it. You've got to provide more support. And so good programs are going to be, not, not surprisingly, built on what happens before release, both soft skills and preparation. If you're taking care of those soft skills and you're connected to employers prior to release, employers can actually help you divide, provide the curricula that you need for hard skill training. Mm -hmm. So if you've got an employer that, that uh, uh, is a warehouse management or whatever and being able to move goods that they're actually participating in the design, if not providing part of the training themselves, you know, coming in and, and giving talks and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So it's it, it begins pre-release and then um, prior to release, they have the opportunity to be interviewed, 
Uh, they have an opportunity to show their certifications and their skill level. And now you've got employers to say, well, this is interesting because these people are actually better prepared, more motivated than the people on the street who, by the way, have got the same problems with showing up late, not showing up at all, doing drugs on the job. It doesn't matter. You talk to any employer, they're going to tell you, I've, I've got this problem, and it isn't because they're former prisoners by any stretch. These right. are members of the general public. Sure. You've got sky-high substance abuse rates and mental health rates, et cetera. You've got problems with transportation all over the place, family issues, et cetera. And so you, if you have a business service model and you've got a former business person who is helping you liaison with these businesses, then you know that stuff. And that's how you, you bring it together. Then post-release, if you start with a transitional job program, and if they do well with that, they transition into a better job, et cetera, and you put them on a career path. Mm -hmm. You're going to be a dishwasher all your life. You want to be a cook. Right. Well, the first job I had in a restaurant, I was bussing tables and washing dishes. I eventually became a backup cook, was making better money, and I eventually began opening the restaurant, et cetera, et cetera. So you build on that, and you've got to have uh, a, a, a motivation, and you've got to understand uh, the trajectory of how you build a career. Impatience, right, can't uh, can't be the defining characteristic. Right. But you've got to show that there's evidence of that, and so is there's a lot to it. Um, and you've got to understand uh, very specifically who you're working with, who what is the offenders or the the, the prisoners' work history, what are their soft skill level, their hard skill level. What are their risk levels? What are we looking at when it comes to in, 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 uh, a place of employment risk? Are we dealing with somebody that's got a, a firecracker of a, of, of a, a anger uh, issue, yeah. et cetera? How do we how do we manage all these things? And to get to get right down to it, it comes to uh, again uh, a well managed, a well thought through system where you're taking care of all of these things at the very top levels with support, you know, perhaps from. The, you know the governor, the executive branch, and also the legislative branch, et cetera. If you're dealing with with uh, with the prison system, and you make sure you know uh, what is their job readiness and how do you attack that, and it's got to be very, very specific. Okay, are there are there some common mistakes that get made there uh, with you know with the best intentions or whatever things that people think that on paper are going to be better for this to solve this problem? that you've seen that are actually make things worse. For example, you mentioned already the the over-focusing on hard skills that might not be exactly what you need, and you need at least as much soft skills as hard skills. But are there any other yeah. examples of um, of misconceptions yeah. out there that um, that don't play out in the data? Yeah, well, uh, the, the big one is around timing. So uh, let's say that uh, you've got a motivated employer. There's not a particularly systematic way to, to plug that employer into the type of approach that I've been talking about here doesn't exist, let's say, and the guy says, well, I'll hire somebody who you got, and you know, a couple guys are on your caseload, and say you're a parole officer, and you say, okay, we got a place, they're willing to hire you. The guy goes and the employer hires him. He's not ready. In fact, within a couple of days, he's not showing up for work. He's got transportation issues. He doesn't have the right uh, tools. He doesn't have work boots. He doesn't have the stuff that he, he needs, he or she needs, and as a result, they get fired right away. Mm -hmm. Now you burned a bridge with an employer. Right. They're not ready. This issue of timing, you've got to understand, and I've said this before, and it, 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 I, when I talk and uh, uh, go to chambers of commerce or civic groups, uh, lions, clubs, et cetera, Kiwanis who will likely have business people at the table, I say, you know, the worst thing that you can do is give a guy a job immediately upon release. And the, all the questions come up because they expected me to say something exactly the opposite. And I use that right. as a starting point to talk about this issue of timing. 
you've got to understand, so what, what do we have here? What, this, this individual who is motivated to report to work, what is the mess of problems that that person is dealing with? Is housing an issue? Is transportation an issue? You've got to get those things lined up so timing uh, uh, is important. And the second one along with that, and I'll mention too, is, is this issue of, of, of coordination. Um, that timing requires a coordination. So if timing is the problem, better timing is the result of, of, of coordination. And uh, pulling those two things together, you've got to have structure. And so uh, you build the structure and you make certain that uh, these things are, 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 are all uh, being addressed so that that employer and the first person he or she hires, wow, really good, showing up, mm-hmm. everything's good. Give me another one. Right. Give me another one. Give me another one. Imagine you've got hundreds of thousands of men and women being released from prisons every day, uh-huh. every day, with an unemployment rate prior to release of 50%, an employment rate post-release 55 60%, right. hundreds of thousands of people. And you're dealing with one job, one employer. How do you tackle that? This is a mountain, a right. mountain of a problem, and you've got to chip away. So I don't know if I've used the analogy of mountain climbing, right? That's a good one, too. How do you, you don't just go out and start climbing the damn mountain. Yeah, we got to prepare. Right? I mean, you've got to get Train. to base camp, and then you're going to go to the next level camp and the next level camp. That's the way that you've got to do this. I've had employers of... of one story in particular down in Louisiana, a major employer say to me at one of our early meetings, he said, yeah, I understand all this stuff that you're trying to do, but at the end of the day, how are we going to make sure that all these people getting out of prison are employed? How do we make sure all of the people getting out of prison are employed? And I said, whoa, man, you're you're standing on top of the mountain and, right. and wondering how are we going to get, get here? And I'm like, man, I want to build a base camp. Right. My question is, how do we get to base camp? You know, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle it, but you do that one, you got to do it one person at a time. Yep. Okay. And you've got to build the systematic approach. And when you think about it that way, you can understand why the system approach is so critical. So it sounds like th- there's a misconception that if you, if you have a job lined up for somebody, uh, then they're just going to do it. Whereas the, 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 what you really need to do is take care of all of the reasons why they're probably whether it's going to be difficult for them to, to do it there, you know, give, give them right. the support of their family right. and the transportation and everything. You can't just assume uh, that, oh, if they have a job, they're going to go and do the job. No, you, it's, you got to have more empathy and see what, what their life is like uh, right. Right. as them. Yeah, that makes uh, well, and, and, and I, I can see how on paper it'd be easy for a for a legislator uh, to, to think that way. Say, oh, here, you know. You know, let them have jobs, let them eat cake, but uh, it's more complicated than that, right? <laughs> Let's not bring the French into it. Okay. <laughs> well, it, so so that's exactly right. The the um, the, the the notion of, of, of building a large scale approach is, as we mentioned before, is is fraught with difficulty. You have a very successful program to work with 10, 20, 30, 40, even fifty people, but then how do you? Uh, engage a more systematic approach to deal with 10 times. How do you scale it? And you've got to have this huge uh, uh, capability. So, you know, having the the type of system that I talk about there uh, uh, is important. And um, this whole issue of documentation as well. Um, So imagine that uh, a group of employers gets together. They're part of a committee on a chamber. They visit a correctional facility where the men have been trained. They show up in a room full of, of, of men. They do a little talk. The men are attentive, they're uh, well-dressed, 
They're then going into interviews. They've been uh, role-played. They're ready. They're ready to answer the question, so talk to me about your criminal record. Uh That's not going to be a surprise to them. How are they going to handle that in the real-world market? You know, are they are they going to not talk about it? Are they going to not mention it? If they do mention it, how are they going to talk about it? How are they going to uh, talk about that experience as a life-changing experience? Right. How does that make me a better employee? You know, I don't want to be judged by the day that I made the biggest mistake of my life. I want to be judged by what I've done since then, and this is what I've done since then. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you why I will make a good employer, uh, a good employee, just like you and I would do in a in a. In a, in a job interview, you know, preparation, you come ready, you've got to be ready uh, to impress. And everybody's got to be on board. When you've got the support of a system-wide approach, you've got a, a good ability to assess both, uh, you know, crime risk and uh, what we call criminogenic needs, meaning what is my degree of criminal thinking, my antisocial behavior, the type of things that you have to be aware of. Somebody's got to address that stuff. You've got to be part of something that will address that stuff. And then the issue of employment is, all right, I'm ready. What are you ready for? I'm ready for some transitional employment. And, you know, we've seen good examples of transitional employment. To talk about that a second, in New York City, I went to a program called CEO uh, in base right in New York City. I, I was with them for a couple of days, and they've got contracts uh, to do short-term work uh, for the city going into uh, city buildings that are being reconstructed, for example, doing the cleanup, sort of like a temp mm-hmm. service. And right. they've got a slew of motivated men that have had some screening and some pre-employment work, and they send these folks there. And the cream of the crop, so to speak, the 10 guys around the crew, two or three of the men are working harder, more motivated, right, more compliant with the rules and regulations. Those are the ones that they can then focus on for employment. And so they're the ones that are brought uh, up and then uh, given uh, job interviews for permanent jobs. That's a very good example. Uh, I mentioned. Yeah, I was, I was uh, just. Yeah. Sorry, I was just about to ask you for examples of, of people doing this right. So that's great. You were going to say another one. Well, and, and I mentioned uh, uh, Louisiana as well. I think that the the work that they're doing, and this is a unique effort by uh, Lobby, Louisiana Association of Business and Industry, which is just an enormously uh, important partner. And then the local chambers of commerce, the uh, NOLA, uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, NOLA Business Alliance, the Jefferson Parish Chamber of Commerce, uh, uh, St. Tammany Jefferson Chamber of Commerce. And the glue that holds that together is the United Way, which is developing for the past several years uh, a very uh, broad effort to reduce poverty uh, and to assist the working poor. And that's the other part, too, that, that, that this ties into another factor uh, in the states where you've got people that are working, but they're not making enough money to get by. They're the working right. poor. And uh, that's why they have two jobs. You know, minimum wage is not enough to support a family. You know, uh, and so you can, you've got to understand that. That's why the United Way of Southeast Louisiana and uh, their leader, Michael Williamson, who's just astounding uh, with his vision for this. He's able to bring these folks together. The NI way is important because they go to the employers uh, anyway, and they help uh, raise money through their annual giving campaigns. And uh, now in Southeast Louisiana, you're able to support uh, the Efforts United Way specifically through their reentry program. Um, and then that in turn brings employers to the table and helps with leadership. So they're taking a systematic approach and tying in with the employment programs there. The governor and the legislature there have uh, created uh, uh, funding mechanisms to be able to pay for some of the stuff. 
Department of uh, Labor there is is doing work to help uh, folks uh, prepare. Uh, Ava Deschois, who's the head of the Department of Labor there, sits on a statewide advisory council for reentry. They've got all the ingredients, and we're hoping for big things. It's still in its its development stages, but unlike a lot of states, it's taking uh, this from the evidence based uh, a beginning point and making sure that they're doing all the things that uh, need to be done in order to get prepared and take it uh, as a system uh, wide effort. So a couple good examples mm -hmm. are Kansas. I'd like to talk more about Kansas um, and what they're doing. I'll have to do a little bit more research before I, I, I dig into that. But, you know, okay. uh, there's there's a lot of stuff uh, to, to, to look at. Um, I think there's a uh, there's a there's a paper that, that we can uh, connect to. Uh, from the Brookings Institute, uh, March of 2018, called Work and Opportunity Before and After Incarceration. It gives a lot of the data uh, that I've talked about here. And, That'll be in the show notes. Yeah. And so it's, um, it's, there's a lot known about it. Uh, there's a lot of good programs out there. There's, uh, I, I could continue with this, this list of places that do part of it right and then another part of it right. Bring it all together is a little bit tough. Uh, but uh, we'll see uh, what happens in the coming year. So another question. I, I imagine uh, not all of the prisoners scheduled for release are cooperative in these efforts. Like, do you look at 100 people that are about to get out in a couple months and, you know, and try it with all of them? But if some of them do, you, do you just try and help the people that are willing to cooperate and and go with you? Or I think, like you've said before, do you especially work harder on the people that aren't cooperative? How does that you can't get every single one of them out of prison and into a job, right? That's right. Uh, That's right. So you do you focus on the people that look like you're going to have success with or how did, how does that triage well, done? Not, not surprising. You, 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 you collect the information you need to be able to make that type of decision. So first of all, you need to know who are we working with relative to their uh, potential, their propensity to commit more crimes? What is their risk level? And mm -hmm. you can designate them low, moderate, or high, for example. And let's say that you've got a, a high risk of future criminality and compared to a very low risk of future criminality. Now you've got three different groups of people according to the risk. Well, then you apply to that. What is their relative degree of job readiness? And so in uh -huh. each of those three groups of low, moderate, and high risk, you've also got readiness in low, moderate, or high. So they have uh -huh. a high degree of readiness. So if you've got low risk of future uh, of criminal activity, and high readiness, that becomes a group that you can work with first, and right. you need to do less with them, as opposed to at the other end, people are high risk who have a very uh, low uh, job readiness, then you need to work with them longer. And it's not so much that you ignore any particular group, you take more time, you do more according to this. Right. If you were to put this on a piece of paper and look at risk levels at the top of the page and look at readiness on the left margin of the page, you're going to end up with nine categories of people from low risk right. and, and low readiness to high risk and high readiness. Yep. And that's how you you, you, you uh, create a systematic approach. And one of the groups that, that uh, I'll mention, and we can link to this as well, is the, the Bureau of Justice Assistance of the U.S. Department of Justice and the Annie Casey Foundation supported the uh, Council of State Government's Justice Center uh, to create something called Integrated Reentry and Employment Strategies, subtext, reducing recidivism and promoting job readiness that talks a, lo a lot about this stuff. It's, it's very logical that folks have been doing this type of work for many years since uh, the Council of State Government, CSG, is, as they're known, uh, did a good job of putting it uh, together in documentation, writing about it and tying the research. And so that's another 
a very good uh, link that, that captures it. But here's the thing. Putting it, putting it down on paper and understanding what needs to be done is one thing. Putting it into practice is another thing. The, of course. The, the, the most difficult part of the work is implementing it. And in order to implement well, you've got to have strong administrative leadership. You've got to have people who understand the work, who are paid to do the work, and can do a good job with it. It takes a lot of work. You will save enormous amounts of money. You will save much, much more than you're going to spend, but it's got to be over the long term. Exactly. So then we talk, as we won't today, about that political cycle and how long it takes to get results. And if you're running for the House and you've got a two-year cycle, you don't have a lot of time right. to wait, right? And so you've got to use some of the national research to be able to convince and, and then uh, hopefully replicate that uh, at the state level and the local level. Next week on Seek Justice, we'll talk about how institutional ego has led to broken promises with justice reform in the state of Mississippi. So when I say this stuff is life or death, it is. Yeah. People are dying. It's it's incredible. And it's so simple when you when you think about what you know, what do you have to do to get ready? I mean, it's not that complicated. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've just heard, you can support us by telling a friend or sharing us on social media. All of our episodes can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we can be reached at seekjusticefm at gmail.com or via our Twitter account, at seekjusticefm. See you next week. <laughs>